HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And good evening. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Last week, we reported on the passage of the Global Food Security Act, which provides more than $3 billion to support farmers in developing countries. It received relatively little coverage amid the GMO labeling storm, uh, but it represents a significant accomplishment for the Obama administration and for those working to improve the food security uh, millions worldwide. Today, Liz Marcy, a senior food policy advisor at Care USA, which is an organization instrumental in developing this act, will join the show to help us understand exactly what it entails, who it impacts, and why it's significant. Later on the show, we will be joined by Greg Sewitz, co-founder of EXO, uh, maker of the food bars that use cricket flour. Before we get into our discussion on the Global Food Security Act, though, I want to run through some of the biggest food policy stories in the past week. First up, uh, food policy ag nerds and ag nerds are ex- getting excited about the potential of an ag-friendly Veep pick for Hillary. Tom Vilsack, the Secretary of Agriculture, is said to be on Clinton's shortlist. Vilsack is a former, well-liked Iowa governor and has led the USDA for over seven years. The two have been close for decades, and he could really help Clinton win the white rural uh, male voters in key farm and Rust Belt states. In D.C., he is known as a workhorse and is not interested in the flashy attention. Uh, he's also spent the Obama administration advocating and working on everything from farm to school programs to global food security. Clinton is expected to announce her decision in the coming days. Uh, 
Next up, uh, crop subsidies. A team from the CDC and Emory University just released a new study evaluating the health impacts of our federal subsidy program. The study found that people who ate the most food derived from subsidized crops, like corn and soy, were much more likely to develop diabetes, heart disease, or stroke than people who consumed the least. The researchers noted that most of these subsidized commodities are converted to high-fat meat and dairy products, refined grains, and high-calorie drinks. Beyond the nutritional and public health impacts, the main concern is that the federal government encourages farmers to plant subsidized crops when prices are low through an insurance program, which ultimately makes this food cheap. The issue and suggested proposals for addressing the program or for, for addressing the challenges are way too complex for a brief update. So we plan on Eating Matters to feature it in more depths in the coming weeks. Be sure to um, look for an update on our team about this. Moving on, um, we're all awaiting uh, President Obama to sign the GMO labeling bill. While it was a bipartisan effort, the bill is not really perfect in either party's eyes. Um, there are those also holding out hope that Obama will mark it up and put more pressure on the industry to make labeling more informative, simple, and accessible. But my crystal ball says that this is an unlikely outcome. And finally, on Monday, the GOP approved their 2016 Farm Bill platform. No surprises here. Uh, they're, they're, um, some of the key things they're calling for are you know, trying to make the Farm Bill proce uh, pa process faster, which is ironic given the fact that they uh, held up the bill last time. Um, they want to separate SNAP from the Farm Bill and restore work requirements for able-bodied adults um, receiving food stamps. They also want to create more opportunities for U.S. trade and essentially rethink how our crop insurance program works. And finally, they pretty much want to make everything the EPA does voluntary and get rid of menu labeling and GMO labeling. Cringe. <laughs> so on that note, on that positive note, um, we're going to wrap up the news segment. Be sure to tweet or direct message us at Eat Matters HRN if you would like to include a particular policy updates, update or if you have thoughts on the ones I discussed today. Okay, now I want to turn to our feature story uh, for today about the Global Food Securities Act. Joining me on the line is Liz Marcy. She's a senior policy advocate of food security and nutrition for CARE USA, a leading humanitarian organization that fights global poverty and provides life-saving assistance in emergencies. Um, this organization was instrumental in helping to shape and pass the act, which the president signed into law today. Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So first, I want to I want to thank you for making time today. Specifically, I understand that you're um, currently at the White House Summit on Global Development, where the act is or was a focal point. Um, can you share what that's like for our listeners? No, absolutely. I think today has been a really exciting day. Um, the summit just just finished, and and the finishing kind of bonanza was having the president himself himself speak to a long legacy of a number of development issues, but indeed one that he highlighted um, and proudly stated to the to the crowd was that he had just signed the Global Food Security Act, and that was met with a um, long 
period of standing uh, ovation from from a lot of advocates and people who have been working on the bill for a long time. Um, so it's definitely a very exciting moment um, in terms of, of the history of the bill and how far we've come. Um, mm-hmm. I think that today is a, a day that, that you know a lot of people are celebrating for that very reason. Um, so take us back to the beginning. When did work on this initiative start and how does it relate to the Obama, um, to the administration's Feed the Future program? Yeah, sure. So the Global Food Security Act actually was started to be drafted in about 2007, um, and it was under the Bush administration that, that this desire to look at broad-based food issues around food security, access to food and nutrition really uh, came to the forefront, and that had a lot to do with some of the food sp- food price spikes that we saw, particularly in 2007 and 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and this bill has gone through a number of updates and, and revisions and versions of it since 2007. Um, out of the first version of this bill, even though that bill didn't, that version of the bill didn't get passed, mm-hmm. um, that actually laid the groundwork for, for what we now know as Seed the Future. Um, you know, the, the Obama administration built on what was starting to be um, kind of brought forward by the Bush administration, and, mm-hmm. and that's really where Feed the Future came from. And so in 2009, the president did announce, um, you know, that, that we were going to have the, about a $3.2 billion pledge to, to global agricultural development, and that was the very beginning of Feed the Future. Um, and so if you fast forward through now, this bill, the, the current version of the bill, um, through all those iterations, has continued, and we are, are really building upon it, um, and building upon Feed the Future, but also improving it. We've learned a lot in the last seven and a half years of mm-hmm. how, how to do the work, um, and, and I think that there's a good standardization of, you know, standards of effectiveness and transparency within the bill, and that's really um, kind of the crux of where we've ended up today. So the bill basically solidifies this particular program and ensures its continued existence, is that right? I would say that's true, but I think it actually does more than that. Um, it, it, it drastically improves some of the areas mm-hmm. of, of the program itself. So, for example, um, yeah, you know, it, I think it, it's, it's it, hard for folks to, to remember, but you know, we haven't actually updated our agricultural policy for over you know, international development since 1961. This is the wow. first time. And so, you know, a lot has changed in agriculture and in the I'm sorry, world did you say 1961? 61, <laughs> yes. So the, okay. the last time that, that um, our foreign assistance policy around agriculture prior to this bill had been touched was um, back in 1961 with okay. the with the foundation of USAID itself. Um, and so while wow. this bill does, you know, carry forth, I would say, the torch that, you know, Feed the Future has has started, it it most importantly really starts to codify and, and put us down that path of updating U.S. global agricultural development and food security policy to current day standards. Um, and that is very exciting. So, yes, it locks in the gains that we've gotten, but it also provides, I think, a new benchmark of what we, what we should expect as, as U.S. citizens, um, you know, seeking to help people around the world. What are the main tenets of the legislation? What does it purport to do and, and how? Yeah, so the, the bill consists of a number of things. I think the most exciting for, uh, you know, a group of folks is really the the first U.S. global development strategy for agriculture and food security. Um, we do not currently have, as a country, a strategy on how we uh, address global development in terms of agriculture and food security, and this, this is a requirement within the bill. Um, right now, there are 11 agencies across the U.S. government, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the State Department to Department of Agriculture to the Treasury Department, you name it, 
and they all have some type of role when it comes to food security and agriculture overseas. And this strategy requires coordination across all of those 11 agencies. So it's very exciting to see that, that strategy requirement. Mm-hmm. The other piece that's in there, um, for the first time, it, it, it also updates uh, and authorizes the International Disaster Assistance Account. And that account um, is the main way that the U.S. responds to humanitarian crises, natural disasters all around the world, whether it be in, you know, in the Philippines with our allies when a typhoon hits or in Syria where we have a, a protracted refugee crisis. That, that account is the main way that we respond. Um, and that account had not been updated in terms of its policy since 1987. And so that is the other, the other yeah. kind of portion of the bill. So you have this first ever you know, global development strategy on agriculture and food security, and then this reauthorization of international disaster assistance as well. And then finally, it updates a lot of standards around transparency and accountability so that we know that our taxpayer dollars are going you know, to the best cases that we can, we can find in terms of agricultural development and food issues. Um, right. Yeah, a- absolutely. So in, in kind of focusing on the development strategy um, on ag and, f- and food security in particular, I un- my understanding is that it, there is a there's a specific focus on small farmers and women. Can you um, drill down on this a little bit and, and tell us more about this particular component? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is really exciting for CARE in particular. We, you know, all of our programs do have a focus. We, we take a special pride in focusing on women um, and men, but particularly on that gender dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this bill is the first time that women um, who, you know, 80% of, of the world's farmers are smallholder farmers, people that farm on, on very small plots of land, usually about the size of a football field. Mm-hmm. Um, And the vast majority of them are women. Um, And so for the first time, this bill actually identifies women and smallholder farmers um, as being the targeted beneficiaries for U.S. global development in agriculture and food security. Um, And and that's for good cause, right? That's that's because if you're not reaching women, then you're not reaching women farmers. And you're not reaching farmers, period. Right. Um, and so that's very exciting that we now have that in law, that mm-hmm. that is the beneficiary intended group for our programs. Wow. Um, do you, are there any demonstrated successes um, of the Feed the Future program that you can kind of point to specifically that sort of helped drive the passage of this legislation? Yeah, I mean, the, the program is definitely very results-driven, and that's something that we've seen in heavy investment from this administration and the prior administration in terms of building the capacity to, to both track, you know, baseline engagements and then the end, you know, the end impacts of the program so that um, we know exactly where where our, our money went and what we're getting for it. Um, this particular initiative has reached over 9 million farmers around the world, and because of it, 18 million children have reached, received nutritional uh, interventions. And we've, we've cut stunting in some countries um, by more than 30 percent. Uh, that's almost unprecedented in such a short period of time. Right. Um, and so we have these great kind of results, and I think that that's been an incredible tool to kind of educate and have a great poli- policy dialogue with, with lawmakers of what we need to improve. That, I think, combined with, you know, the recognition that food has an incredibly important role Mm -hmm. um, in terms of conflict, in terms of geopolitical situations, and in terms of our own national security, and building future consumer bases even for the U.S. to export, um, you know, goods to. That, That really, those were the big driving pieces behind this bill. And then, frankly, 
to be honest, a lot of members of Congress truly do want to help people overseas, and this is very important to them. Um, it's the right thing to do, and as they say, it's also the smart thing to do. And, and when all those things align, that's when you get something like this done. Um, right. I mean, I, I want to kind of actually jump ahead. Um, in, in an era when Congress can agree on pretty much nothing and major pieces of legislation remain stalled for months, even years at a time, why do you think this bill received such broad bipartisan support? Because I'm not totally convinced that they um, that everyone in Congress is only motivated by doing the right thing, <laughs> unfortunately. Maybe a little cynical, but... <laughs> yeah, no, and I... I, I... I, that is a frustration I hear often. Um, I think for, you know, this bill, this is, you know, this, I think for folks to remember that this has been almost a nine-year fight um, in terms of getting this bill to where it is, which is now law. Mm-hmm. And that, that takes a long time. And in that time, there have been a lot of discussions and socializations. There have been a lot of, um, you know, I think learning opportunities for members as well. And frankly, there is a strong desire to have appropriate oversight and reporting of, of our foreign assistance programs, mm-hmm. and that includes our agricultural development programs. Um, this bill does not cost any additional funding or money. Um, it is, you know, it's budget neutral in terms of our deficit. And so hmm. this is not necessarily about more assistance. This is about better assistance. Smarter assistance. And having, and having more transparency for the American taxpayer about what their dollars are going towards. And that is a very compelling case. Um, and once you walk people's through that, they, they tend to get very excited. Right. Absolutely. Okay. We are going to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, um, I'm going to want to continue focusing the conversation on um, what, what domestic repercussions this type of policy will, will have. Stay tuned. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Liz Marcy from Care USA about the Global Food Security Act. Uh, Liz, what was Care USA's role specifically in in passing this legislation? Care works with a number of, of, of partners, both on the Hill, but also within the NGO community. So, you know, some sister organizations, Save the Children, um, Bread for the World, the One Campaign, Global Poverty Project, to get this bill uh, to where it is. And that actually really started, um, I would say, looking back at the drafting of the language itself. Um, you know, we worked with the with the members of Congress who were particularly interested in, in putting this bill flo- forward to make sure that we had good language in there, particularly around women, smallholder farmers, monitoring and evaluation, transparency, those types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that started about three years ago for this version of the bill. Um, and from there, we've you know we've supported and educated. On the Hill. And then most importantly, I would say we've had an incredible, massive grassroots 
um, kind of push from U.S. citizens who care about these issues. And, and through our, you know, our Care Action Network, um, people have engaged over and over and over again with their policymakers to push the bill forward. Um, and each time that they do, members take notice. Um, and, and slowly but surely, you start to, to get to a point where you have the votes and you've got to pass forward. Um, okay, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit more about our domestic policy. So uh, I know you know these stats, but I'm just gonna um, say them anyways. Feeding America, um, states said in 2014, uh, 48.1 million Americans lived in food insecure um, or were worse food insecure in 14% of households. Um, also food insecure. We have a domestic food policy or food safety program that is a lightning rod right now, especially for political debate. Um, people want it to be gutted, revamped, expanded, um, and whatnot. So I'm I'm wondering how you um, sort of defend and, and prioritize uh, legislation that really f- works to focus on food insecurity abroad versus at home in the U.S. at a time when our own domestic food safety program is at a crossroads. Yeah, and and this is you know this is a very common kind of perception and, and question, and and it basically boils down to that this is not a zero sum game, um, and so the investments that we're we're giving to people who who are literally subsistence farmers who can expect you know four to six months a year where they have no food mm-hmm. at all during a lean season, those are the people that we're talking about, right. um, and this money is often you know it's going to them, it's it's being invested in these programs already, um, and so the question is we have a choice. Do we want those programs to be the most effective and transparent Mm -hmm. as they can be? And I think that that is an obvious yes. Um, And oftentimes what's interesting is, you know, I think we we do not lose anything. In fact, we gain a lot by per, by kind of providing pass forward for communities to be able to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a strong I would say focus in this bill. That's another very exciting component. There is a for the first time we have a legal definition of what sustainability is in terms of the international development context, mm-hmm. and that is particularly exciting because it makes it very clear what the goal is. And the goal is to get people off of assistance and get them being able to feed themselves. And as we get that kind of economic growth that is often paired with agricultural development, um, we actually see an incredible increase in our own U.S. exports to those countries. So, for example, in 2013, you know, the fourth largest market for U.S. beef was Angola. Um, and, I mean, this is, it's, it's a good thing for the U.S. as well. Um, and that's part of the reason why you see a lot of private sector partners um, mm-hmm. and corporations really supporting this work and supporting the bill because, one, they know um, that they need to supply, you know, for food, for food producers in terms of of food companies, they need to have a supply chain that they can rely on all around the world. Um, and right now, that means empowering farmers so that they are producing the right quality, quantity, um, you know, at the right time for them to have that supply chain. But it also means them gaining access to new consumers. Um, and so you see a broad kind of investment, um, I would say, in, in that and that theory that this is really where we're at. And the good news is that it's already paying off um, in terms of the, the communities we work with. You know, we're right. seeing purchases of higher quality foods, some of them imported from the U.S. And so it's, you know, I, I think one thing that's interesting is countries don't just want aid. They want trade. You know, and that that is really where we're headed with this. But in terms of, of pr- helping those that are really, truly on the front line of, of abject poverty and a high level of, of food insecurity, um, that that's really where the focus is. Right. I guess I'm just a little bit confused because I, 
maybe intuitively, I just assume that it, it the one of the repercussions could be potentially discouraging exports, so U.S. farmers might take a hit. Um, but it seems like you're saying that it's a both and. It's a both and. And in fact, there is a provision of law in place and has been in place, I believe, since the early 1970s called the Bumpers Amendment, which prohibits any overseas development activities by the U.S. government, which could in any way compete with U.S. Interests, um, and with that in mind, that is that's why we're kind of focusing um, specifically on, on on people that are subsistence farmers, and that's 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 the real um, and kind by, of crux of this. By subsistence farmers, you mean it's people that are truly growing what they eat, um, okay. and if they don't grow anything, they have nothing to eat. Okay. Okay, great. All right. Well, we have time um, for one final question. And um, I just would love it if you could tell us how this act kind of um, fits within the broader context of the global food security and climate change work that the administration has accomplished. Yeah, I think that this is a it's a great milestone and a great I would say marker in terms of, of what we've accomplished as a as a country. And again, you know, I, I would you know, I think that this this particular movement towards supporting agricultural development because it's critical for you know, national security in terms of people, if when they're hungry, that is when often conflict breaks out. Um, but that actually started, you know, that started underneath the Bush administration. And so this has been a long time coming. I, I think that this is um, sometimes seen, this bill is sometimes seen as an apex of that journey. But in actuality, I think it is a huge stepping stone and, and a recognition that we have, we have a lot more work to do, mm-hmm. but that this is a truly critical thing for us to be looking at um, and that we need to start, you know, we need to start locking in the gains that we have gotten so far. I think that those are, those are great pieces that project a fantastic level of leadership of the U.S. government on these issues um, to, to all of the world, and including other donor countries. Um, and those are things that I think that we can leverage going forward. Oh, great. Well, um, this has been so informative. I want to congratulate you, your organization, um, on this really important work and this huge milestone. Thank you so much for joining us to tell us more about this act today. Oh, thank you. That was, in fact, the the sound of a car starting, which means that it is time for our final segment um, where we feature a good food startup uh, of the week. Um, Today, I'm pleased to introduce Greg Savitz, co-founder of EXO, maker of the food bars that use cricket flour. Hi, Greg. Hey, how are you? Good. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Excited to have you um, on the show. Um, yeah, of course. So, so tell me, tell me about the company. Tell me about EXO. So, EXO is a company I co-founded about two years ago with my college roommate, uh, and it was really inspired by a report in 2013. Uh, all about edible insects as a sustainable protein source, and really, um, it was a food group that's been consumed by many countries around the world for a long, long time, mm-hmm. uh, but wasn't wasn't very well known, at least here in the United States. And this report really did a lot to raise the profile um, of the food group because it kind of looked into a lot of the sustainability statistics around using protein from insects compared to livestock, and the numbers are, are really quite shocking. Right. Uh, and and the, the report concluded at the end that crickets, for example, are 20 times more resource efficient than cows as a protein source, uh, and that's collapsed across um, methane production and land use and feed conversion ratios. 
Uh, and I was kind of taken aback by a lot of these statistics and thought it, it was a really interesting opportunity to try and bring an entirely new food group to the Western world uh, in America where we were living, especially since we're one of the largest meat-eating countries in the, in the world. So we decided to uh, try and find a form factor that would appeal to U.S. consumers, and we kind of looked at protein powders uh, mm -hmm. since they were – a category that was steadily rising uh, and still is. Um, and they also kind of helped us get over that psychological hurdle in that they separate the ingredient from the original um, bug. So when you look at our cricket protein powder, it just looks like any other powder. Right. And you would never know that it was made uh, from crickets, and, and that helps people kind of get over that hump. So we put a cricket protein powder in protein bars, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we sell those protein bars basically as an introductory vehicle to educate people around uh, cricket protein and get uh, products into consumers' hands where they can actually try cricket proteins. And most people in the U.S. have never really encountered edible insects before right, right. unless they've traveled around the world. Right. And why crickets specifically as opposed to other insects like Beetles. Is there something that like about the cricket that is more conducive to uh, cooking or making into a, a, a flower? We did a lot of research and found that crickets are the lowest psychological hurdle compared to uh, other insects really? that were available on a large scale. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that um, crickets have a lot of things going for them. <laughs> uh, the, the main one is that people have positive associations because of the sounds that they make. Right. Um, and if they've, you know, if you've ever camped outside, you kind of have this background of crickets. Yeah. Very soothing. Uh, and Jim, <laughs> Jiminy Cricket, Jiminy Cricket, the popular character from everyone's childhood. Um, and I would say the last one is just the fact that they're not worms. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're not slimy, um, and they don't really have any gross-out connotations. And so we decided that it made the most sense to use as our gateway bug. Or gateway uh, bug. Consumers. So, okay, so I want to um, back up. You have a degree in English and cognitive neuroscience, is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, th those two things, by the way, obviously go together. Um, it's the first <laughs> thing I think of when I think of neuroscience is English. But, okay, so how did you end up starting a food company specifically? Like, you read this report and then you decided that, um, you know, creating a product was going to make it a, a substantive impact in this area? Like, what was it about food that decided, that sort of shifted your focus away from science? I'd always been interested in food um, just on a personal level uh, and going to restaurants um, and, you know, touring farms, et cetera. Uh, but really, I had no plans to start a food company, neither did my co-founder. It was really just sort of being hit with the right idea at the right time and, and deciding to go for it. Uh, and we, you know, we made prototypes of these cricket protein bars and started handing them out at college to our friends. We brought them to some different farmers markets and local gyms around Providence, Rhode Island, where we were at school. Yeah. And people people really liked it. And we, you know, when we explained the rationale behind it, you really could see a light bulb go off. And that moment was really gratifying. And we decided to see if we could make it work on a larger scale. So we actually launched a Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
And that was incredibly successful as well. We ended up meeting our $20,000 goal in less than 72 hours. Wow. And that was kind of the validation that we needed to kind of forgo whatever other career choices we might have made <laughs> and, and pursue this full time. Yeah. And since then, it's you never look back. Kind of snowballed. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, uh, have you seen consumer perception changed uh, changed since you first launched? Yeah, so much. It's it's crazy. I mean, when we first started selling the product, uh, we actually sell mostly direct to consumer through our own website. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we don't do a ton of physical sales, but uh, basically when we would do demos in a grocery store that we were in, let's say at the very beginning, I mean, it was just one person after another who we really had to convince to take a bite. And you could see that they were so hesitant. Yeah. Nobody had really heard of the idea. Like they just thought that we were these weirdos <laughs> who were trying to get them to eat, eat bugs. You're like most and people now, in the world eat bugs, except for Americans. Right. You guys are the weirdos. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, that's the irony of the whole thing. But but now when we do demos, I would say nine out of ten people have heard about us or other cricket companies. They are totally educated on the benefits of eating bugs. Yeah. They know that it's incredibly sustainable. They've tried products usually that have crickets in it, and they just walk right up and, like, pop a bite into their <laughs> mouth. So it's really a huge, huge difference in the past few years, just from the media attention and the other companies as well that have popped up and kind of opened the industry out into other product categories and geographical locations too. How many crickets does it take to make one bar? And and where do you even where do you get them from? Our bars use about forty crickets. That's uh, a lot. In each one, right? Isn't that a lot? That seems it, like a lot. It, yeah, it's a lot, but they're pretty small. Okay. Uh, and we only buy farm raised crickets, so we've worked with various cricket farms to uh, scale up their operations, uh, develop you know feed practices um, and really fine-tune the process of dehydrating the crickets and then milling them into the, the protein powder. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, that was another challenge as well that we faced at the beginning of the industry where there just weren't enough crickets for <laughs> Not enough cricket um, farms? Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, and now, now that's really changed as well. So you've helped drive the market on that. Right. Um, other applications that you guys are exploring beyond flour or and beyond a bar with crickets? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we definitely envision um, having other products that use cricket flour and cricket protein, um, but we want to remain focused on building a brand that consumers trust because for us that's the largest uh, and most important thing that we're doing here because we face such a hurdle, even still in terms of the larger mass market, right. that I think there really has to be trust between us and the products we sell, uh, that they're going to taste good, that they're going to be healthy, that they're going to be sourced ethically and sustainably. And so we really want to make sure that all of those boxes are checked before we start voting on other products, right. especially when the bars the bars themselves are are doing so well and there's still so much room for us to grow them but we expect to you know i'm sure that we'll launch other products that naturally fit with our existing consumers even before we try and expand the pie so things like protein powders and um and other 
fitness and health oriented products. Um, okay, I lied. I have one, even one more, one more question. Um, or were there any regulatory hurdles that you guys had to face, given the fact that um, there's not a whole lot of cooking with insects in the U.S. that happens? The U.S. is very um, hands-off when it comes to most regulation compared to a lot of other countries around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found that essentially as long as we're following all of the um, regulations around labeling and um food handling that the FDA provides for any food, no matter what it's made from, then insects are no different from, from anything else. So obviously, the you know, everything needs to be prepared uh, in the certified facility using food-grade um, practices, and the packaging needs to accurately identify what's in the product. Uh, but there's really no insect-specific regulations that we have to comply with that other food producers don't have to, for example. Yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. I think that's great. That's perfect. Um, thank you mm-hmm. for being available. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. With that, we are going to wrap up for today. Um, want to thank all of our guests. Oh, and by the way, for more information and to get your cricket protein or your cricket bar, go to exoprotein.com. I want to thank all of our guests today, Liz, Greg, and also big thanks to our, our sponsors for your generous support. Our show's produced uh, with help from Taylor Lenzet, and the show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineers, David Tedashore and Pierre Bienemy. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.